I'm going to be reading from the end of Acts chapter 7 this morning, beginning in verse 51, Acts 7, 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. I'll pray. Father, I thank you again for your word and all that you've given us, Lord, through your word and through the ministry of your spirit who indwells us. We look to you, God, to just teach us and to bring about the correction, um, the the admonition, God, that we each need, and especially the conformity to your Son, that what is true of him would be increasingly reflected in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say happy Mother's Day as well. Um, you know, I don't often preach a Mother's Day or Father's Day sermon, and over the years, Especially on not doing that on Mother's Day, preaching a Mother's Day sermon. I've had, I can't tell you how many times moms have, or just women in general, have said to me, thank you for not preaching a Mother's Day sermon. And so that's been an encouragement to me not to do that every year. So if you're disappointed, blame it on the other women who have said, don't preach a Mother's Day sermon every Sunday. Not to say that women and moms are not um, highly significant. I was just thinking again this morning on how um, God has so powerfully used my mother in my life and, and how I watch God using Patsy in the lives of our children and grandchildren. And it's amazing. It is truly um, a, a, a significant role that God has given for moms as well as for dads. And can't be overstated how significant that role is and the influence that you're having moms on the lives of your children And even those who aren't your children, I think about my mom and how God used her in so many other children's lives, in our neighborhood even. And and I'll never forget the boy that was the troubled boy in the neighborhood growing up in a single parent home and um, his his father very abusive. And my mom was was the only gentle, loving woman in his life. And um, years after they moved away, one day this guy pulled up in front of our house on a motorcycle, pulled off the full helmet. And it's this kid, this troubled kid that nobody even wanted to hang out with him. And, and his dad was, was just violent and, and abusive toward him and um, hadn't seen the kid in, in years. And he, he gets off. He's no longer a kid. He's a, he's a young man. He gets off his motorcycle, 
and um, ignores all of us. We're out in the yard playing, and he just ignores us and, and goes up and knocks on the front door, and my mom comes out, and he's got a single rose for her. And he just hands that rose to her and says, Thank you, Mrs. McCall, for how you've loved me when I lived on this block. And it was amazing. Not even one of her kids. So I say that because you don't have to be a mom to be a mom. You know, you, you, can, you can have, you can be that kind of person, that mother, that, that maternal um, person in somebody else's life without having biological children. And as a man can be a man and be a father in other people's lives without having biological children. So don't underestimate your role. It is truly, truly significant. Well, this is, um, I, I want to get into chapter 7. I thought I would do this last week, and we didn't. I just kind of stayed in the, in the introduction. But chapter 7 here of Acts is, is Stephen's speech, and it's the longest speech in the book of Acts, and it's very significant. We know when we get to the end of chapter 7, Saul, who later becomes Paul, was the one that they laid their, their coats at his feet while they stoned him. And so Paul would have probably heard Stephen give this message. And it tremendously shapes his life after he becomes a Christian. And, and you, as, you, as you look at the epistles and watch how Saul, has Paul lived his life and what he taught, it's like this is Stephen's message is what got to him. And, and there are so many things in this message that just go, this is what Paul was about. And when you read the book of Hebrews, you're going, this is a big, long book in the New Testament that really is just a, an amplification of Stephen's message. As Gentiles, when we read this, we go, what's the big deal here? But if you read it as a Jew, at this time, this is monumental. And it was mind-blowing to the Sanhedrin Council as they heard this. It is a powerful, powerful speech. In my study, I came across um, um, an illustration, and, and it said that back in the days when they were still stoning Christians, not stoning Christians, burning Christians at the stake, um, this one Christian was given an opportunity to, um, to profess his faith, to give a testimony before they lit him on fire. And afterwards... Two men were commenting on that speech. And the one man said, I had no idea that guy could give a speech like that. I didn't think he was capable of giving a sermon like he just gave. The guy had just been lit, just literally torched. And the other guy says, you know, I think it must be that knowing you're about to be lit on fire, burnt at the stake, has a way of focusing the mind. <laughs> I would think so. But Stephen is not giving a powerful speech simply because he knows he's about to be stoned. Because he doesn't know he's going to be stoned. I mean, that's very much in the works. I'm sure he wasn't surprised by it. But this is a powerful speech, not just because his mind is focused, and I'm sure it was focused. But as we know, he was a man full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom. These are all the things that is talked about in chapter 6. This is a man who's under the Spirit's control. And it is an amazing speech. So keep in mind the three things that are, are front and center for the Sanhedrin Council at this time are the law of Moses, the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, and the temple. And those are the three things that have basically become idols here. 
And Stephen's going to just go after all three of these things, the land, the temple, and the law of Moses. And he's going to say, you guys have put way too much emphasis on these three things. So I'm going to step through this quickly as I can through this sermon, then I want to come back and make some, some lessons and some observations from it. And so it begins, and the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, hear me, my brethren and fathers. So he starts out very respectful and honoring here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and he's going to finish his sermon making the same reference to the God of glory. And he begins by putting an emphasis on Abraham and then later Joseph, and then later Moses. And then finally he's going to get to David and Solomon. But Abraham is the key component here. And this is significant because God made a covenant with Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant is more significant than the Mosaic covenant. But Israel at this time is focused on Moses and the covenant that God made. And he's going, you need to go back further in history. Because there would be no Mosaic covenant if there wasn't an Abrahamic covenant. And what God promised to Abraham was much more significant than what he promised to Moses. And so he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And then makes a point, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. In other words, not when he was in Israel. So the God of glory is not dependent on revealing himself to people who are living in Israel. Now, as a Hellenist Jew, which Stephen was, he, he can see this. You don't have to live in Israel for God to speak to you. Now, Patsy and I made a trip to Israel a couple years ago now, and I highly recommend if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, go to Israel. But Israel is not holier than any other land. Okay, we call it the Holy Land. And that's part of the problem here. They, these people have begun to see Israel as the holy land, and there was no other holy land. And he's going to just come right at that. So he says, God spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he even lived in Haran. And he said to him, depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And he departed from the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which we are now living. And he gave him no inheritance. So yes, God finally got him here. But he died without owning any land. So how significant was this land to Abraham? Practically nothing. And when you read the book of Hebrews, we're told that Abraham was looking for a city whose foundations are not on this earth. And so even though Abraham knew God brought him to this land, obviously this land was not everything that Abraham was living for. He was looking for a city who's not even doesn't even have its foundations on this earth. Abraham understood this land is not as significant as what the people are now making it to be. So he died without any inheritance of land, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect. So again, yes, there's the promise, but he didn't get any land. Yes, there's a promise, but, verse 6, but God spoke to this effect that his offspring 
would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. So yes, God gave him, gave him the land of Canaan, but he didn't get any of it. And then he says, but you will, your descendants will have it, but your descendants are going to be slaves in another land for 400 years. So you can see, he keeps saying, yeah, the land, but... And so for 400 years, they live in another country, and they're slaves in that country. And he's going to come back to that in a second with Joseph. Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. This is the big deal. It's not the Mosaic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, now Joseph, and sold him into Egypt. Now, one of the things about this sermon, and I'm not going to get into all of it, is that there are a number of places where it seems to be some of the things that Stephen says are not historically accurate. And so the, so the critics make, make heyday out of this. They go, look at this. This guy didn't even know what he's talking about. But he did know what he was talking about. And, and Stephen just has a better understanding of what actually took place in these events than even what the Old Testament reveals. And the Sanhedrin council never corrects him. And they don't get mad at him for, being, for not handling God's word accurately. He handled it better than what we would understand by just looking at the Old Testament. He obviously had more information here than just what the Pentateuch reveals to us. And, and there's, so I won't even get into all those things because it's not worth the time. He knew what he was saying, and the Sanhedrin council, by their refusal, by, their, by the omission of correcting him, tells us that he didn't say anything wrong. Because if he had, these guys would have jumped on it. And so he didn't say anything wrong as in those details that come up. So now he says in verse 9, and the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. What patriarchs? The guys we put all our hope in. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay. And, and the fathers that came from Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob. And it says 11 of those sons, they became jealous. Actually, 10 of them, the 10 older brothers, and they sold him the very ones who were heirs of the promise. The very ones that the Abrahamic covenant was given to. The very ones that are the fathers of Israel. They sold him into Egypt, another country. Okay, And yet... God was with him. Where? In Egypt. So you don't have to be in Israel for God to be with you. Praise God. And nobody's saying, amen. Okay? They're getting madder and madder as they're hearing this. And he's, not, he's just getting started. But it's, it's very clear here, the big deal is not the land. The big deal is not the Mosaic Covenant. The big deal is that God can speak to you anywhere you are, and the Abrahamic covenant is, is the foundational covenant of God's dealings with Israel. And that does not exclude Gentiles, the Abrahamic covenant. And so he, he's, he, they're jealous of him, and they sell him into slavery. God was with him, and God rescued him from all of his, his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there. So this, this reference, our fathers, our fathers, this is our father. This is what they were like. 
They came, and then verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all of his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. So that's one of those things, 75. We're only really 75, it was seven. No, they're a different way of counting. And, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away, and our fathers. They all died outside of Israel. What do you do with that? They died in Egypt. All of our fathers died in Egypt. Huh. And then it says, and from there, they were removed to Shechem. They. Who was removed? We just thought that um, Joseph was the only one that was removed from Egypt to, to the burial place inside of Israel. And apparently it was more than Joseph. This makes it sound that all the sons of Jacob were removed from Egypt and buried in Canaan. But we thought they were buried where Abraham was buried. No, they were not buried where Abraham was buried. They were buried in Shechem. And it just happens to be that at this time that Stephen was saying this, Shechem is in Samaria, where those dirty dogs live. You see the emphasis that's going on here. When they finally got back to Canaan, they were buried in Samaria. And you guys think this land is everything. I mean, he is just destroying their idolatry because they had, they had an idolatrous fixation on the land of Israel. As significant as Israel is, it is not the big deal that they were making it at this time because they were, they were substituting devotion to the land and devotion to the law, and devotion to the temple for God himself. And that makes it an idol. These good things, these are blessings. God said that you're going to be in the land. God gave the law, and, and, and he's going to get to the tabernacle, and says, and God gave the tabernacle. He didn't give the temple, but God gave the tabernacle. But these blessings have become a substitute for God himself. And that makes them an idol. From there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb of Abraham, and which he had, had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Again, details there that we think, oh, that's not right. But it is right. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had, had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph, and it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his mother's home. Now this is the, apparently, the, it is, not apparently, this is the only baby in scripture that is noted as being beautiful when he was born. Okay. Every other baby was an ugly baby, apparently, because only Moses ever called a beautiful baby when he was born. It reminds me that when um, Madison, she's part of our church, she's not here today, when she was born, Madison doesn't know this, but when she was born, she was a beautiful little girl. And she was born at the same time as one of my nieces was born. And I can remember talking to Madison's grandfather and congratulating him on the, you know, his new granddaughter. And I said, I mean, she's a beautiful little girl. You know, my brother's just had a little girl, too. Not so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> She's turned out to be a beautiful young woman. So 
God changes people. Anyway, Moses, Moses was the only one who was ever, my mother, bless her heart, my mother went to see a friend of hers who had just given birth, and she's at the hospital, and she swung by the nursery first to see the baby, and she saw the baby, and, um, and, and she went in to see the mom. And the mom says, have you seen my baby? And my mother's just thinking, what am, what am I going to say? And she, just, just, and she goes, Opal, you don't need to say anything. I know that's the gosh awfulest looking baby I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> All of my own mother saying that's an ugly baby. Anyway, Moses was a beautiful, beautiful baby. Nurtured for three months in his father's house. And look at this verse 21. And after he had been exposed. Now we read Genesis. And this is the way Exodus actually. We read Exodus and, and we, this is the way we've always told the story to our kids is that Moses' mother made this little ark, coated it in tar so that it would not sink, put the baby in it, gave him a nice little blanket, hid him in the reeds, and just, you know, knowing that's where Pharaoh's daughter bathed, and all with the intention that Pharaoh's daughter would find him and rescue him. That's not what this says. He was exposed, meaning he was put out there to die. And, well, what about Miriam watching from a distance? Apparently, she was watching, waiting to see a crocodile come and eat him. Because he was not simply put there in the hopes of being rescued, though no doubt, mother was hoping that he wouldn't die. But the expectation was, he's going to die. He was exposed. He was put out into the elements to die, just like all the other Hebrew boys were put out to die. God rescued him. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. And when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance on the oppressor by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting him them deliverance through him, and that they did not, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them at peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of where? Midian. So he goes from Egypt. To Israel. No, he goes from Egypt to Midian, another pagan country, where he became the father of two sons. He spends the first 80 years of his life living in pagan countries. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, where? In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, a pagan country, in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. Because that's where God is, in Midian. Why is the temple not in Midian? Wow, they didn't want to be reminded of that. They thought Israel was the only holy ground. No, you're mistaken. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, 
and heard of their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. And Moses, whom they had disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Now, let me stop. This, it ought to be obvious, because it certainly was to the Sanhedrin. Stephen is choosing now Joseph and Moses to highlight because of the comparisons to Jesus. How they treated Joseph, they sold him away, was how Jesus was treated. How they treated Moses, they rejected him as their deliverer, is how Jesus was delivered, how Jesus was treated. So you can go through these two characters here, Joseph and Moses, and see the parallels with Jesus. And it was not lost on the Sanhedrin council. And just as Jesus was spurned and rejected by his own, as John 1 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's what happened to Joseph. That's what happened to Moses. And so there's there's a reference here to Jesus in both of these men. And it was the second time that that they were received. So Joseph was not accepted the first time around. It's the second time around when the brothers come to him for the second time in Egypt. And then they go, oh, this is Joseph. And Joseph is received. It's the second time for Moses, not when he's 40 years old, but when he's 80 years old and he comes back to his brethren, now they receive him. Just as Jesus was not received the first time, but he was rejected the first time, but when he comes back the next time, he will be be received by Israel. And the point here is, receive him while you still have a chance. And this is what Peter preached. Peter says, if you will repent Israel and receive him, he will come again. But you've got to receive him or he's not going to come again. And so it really does seem that Stephen is just, is just picking up on what Peter has already said twice before the Sanhedrin council. This is the third time now that somebody has stood before the Sanhedrin council since they murdered Jesus. And they're all saying the same thing. This is about Israel repenting. And you've got a chance here. And they're going to completely blow Stephen off. And that will be the end for Israel for a long time. And not in the sense of God's covenant's over, not in the sense that God is done with Israel, but because God still has a future for Israel, absolutely 100%. But these people, what they're about to do here in rejecting what Stephen is saying is a rejection of God and is the end for Israel at this time. Now, this man, verse 37, this is the Moses whom God said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for your prophet like me from your brethren. What did Moses say? Again, he's in the face of the Sanhedrin. Moses said, this Moses that you're you're idolizing, this Moses said, God is going to raise up another prophet like me. Moses was rejected the first time. Moses came to deliver his people, and they rejected him as deliverer. It wasn't until the second time. And he's saying, do you see what's going on here? How you treated Joseph, how you treated Moses, is exactly how Jesus was treated. This is why Moses says, there's going to be another one like me come. Jesus is the second Moses. You see? And they they don't want to hear this. 
The same thing about the signs and wonders in verse 36. The same thing about speaking with words of power. All this is reflective of Jesus. So, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So he says, I'm not minimizing how significant the law is. They are living oracles. I get it. But they point to Jesus. And they were never meant to be the focus of worship. Moses was to point us to Jesus. There is no salvation in Moses. None. You can't be a follower of Moses and be saved. You have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to be saved. Moses just points the way. There is no salvation in the law. Never has been, never will be. Abraham is a picture of salvation, not Moses. It's Abraham that, that again, this is where, where Paul was being so influenced, I believe, by this sermon. Because when Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 4 of Romans, he's going to say, this is how we are saved as Abraham was saved. He's not going to point back to Moses. Moses is not a picture through the law of how to be saved. You can't be saved on the basis of law. So prior to the law, God saved Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. And that is the picture of salvation. So that's why Stephen is going back to Abraham. Because there is no salvation in Moses. And again, these people's brains were just blowing off. You can't be saying this. Because they believe they were the redeemed, saved people who do not need to be saved because they are born saved because they are born according to Moses. In the land, born in the right place, with the right rules, the right regulations, the right place to worship, how can you say we need to be saved? Isn't that what the Pharisees said? We don't need to be saved. Are you saying that we're blind? You're saying that we need to be saved? Many Jews today. I I know one preacher down in San Antonio, he got himself in trouble with Israel because he was saying Jews need to be saved. And now he no longer says that. Because he didn't like being in trouble with the uppity-ups of Israel. Yes, they need to be saved. Paul will say that in Romans. He says, my brethren are not saved. And I would give up my own salvation for the sake of their salvation if that could possibly result. If my forfeiting my salvation could result in them being saved, I would forfeit my salvation. Not Not that he could. But he says in Romans 11, Israel will be saved. But they're not yet. Verse 39, and our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, just like you guys. Unwilling to be obedient to Jesus, repudiated Jesus, and in your hearts turning back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt We do not know what happened to him. And at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. This is your fathers. This is the one that you say you are like them. Yeah, you're like them. They were idolaters and so are you. Man, this message is, he's getting tough with them. But God turned away. 
and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the Proverbs, prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rapha, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. I'll give you that. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And, ha- and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. You're making a too big a deal about this temple. God didn't make this temple. Solomon did. Moses made a tabernacle, temporary, portable, never meant to be permanent. By its very built materials that he made, that he used to make it, it was meant to be temporary. It was a temporary structure. Tents are not permanent structures. And that was a tent. By the very, just look at it, Stephen's saying. Do you think it was meant to be permanent if God didn't say, build me a temple? God said, build me a tabernacle. It was meant to be temporary. And it was in a foreign land. And they brought it out from a foreign land into this country, but it was not meant to be what you guys are making it to be, as significant as it was, very significant, but it's not the main thing. So the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now he's done with the sermon and he's going to get to his application. And that's what I read this morning. But before we get to that, think about what he said. He's gone after the the emphasis on the land. God has spoken to people from Abraham on who were not in this land. And you can have holy land wherever God is. And the dirty little secret, God wasn't in the temple. Right? Ezekiel's vision in the book of Ezekiel he sees the glory of God departing Solomon's temple. The glory of God never came to Herod's temple. It hasn't been there for a long, long time. So why are are you making such a big deal about this beautiful house? Yes, but God's not in this house. And here you got a man who didn't even grow up in Israel, Hellenist Jew, who's pointing out to them the absurdity of making this temple the big deal, making this land the big deal, and making the law take precedent, which cannot save, over Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And it's there that salvation is revealed, that the righteousness of God comes through faith, not through works. Everything that they have built their trust on Stephen has just demolished it. Now the only response is, you're going to recognize that you're a bunch of idolaters and repent? 
So he gets really in their face. Now, this is the limitation of reading narrative. We don't know the tone of voice, right? We don't know. Now, I, I can read this easily and think that he's screaming at okay? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, and are, I don't, but I don't know that's what he was doing. Because you don't need to do that. The words speak for themselves. I think he could have been there because he's full of the Spirit. That doesn't mean that when you're full of the Spirit, you never raise your voice, okay? But he didn't need to raise his voice. The words themselves carry the very power of God. And these men are not going to be cut to the quick because he's yelling at them. They're cut to the quick because of what the Spirit of God is doing. And I always think, because this is not my first, my first nature is to yell, believe it or not. Ask my family. But I think about that passage in James where it says the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And I'm thinking, when God's speaking, he doesn't need to yell. I don't find God yelling in Scripture. He speaks slowly, he speaks distinctly, and he speaks with power. He doesn't need to get animated, does he? And so I don't, I think it's my personality that reads this and goes, Stephen's just shaking his fist at these guys. I, one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen was the old black and white version of Martin Luther's life. And in that movie, man, he's standing there and he's got this table in front of him, and they've piled all the things that he's written on the, on the table. And they're saying, are you going to acknowledge that you wrote these things? Are you going to recant of what you've written? I'm paraphrasing. And he looks at it, and he's not screaming or anything. Again, it's a movie, but it's powerful. And he just stands there and says, unless you can show me, based on the word of God, that anything I've written is contrary to what God has said, I will not. And I cannot recant. Powerful, man. He didn't say, you brood of vipers. He's not doing that. And there's a place for that. But even when Jesus is going, you brood of vipers, we don't know how he was actually saying that. The words themselves are powerful because they're coming from the Spirit of God. You men. Stephen could have been standing there with tears streaming down his face for all we know. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Having student population that we have at His Hill, as we do, we get to know people pretty well in a small community, and you hear their stories. And, and there's been a couple times that students have have shared about struggles that they had. I remember one girl um, about to die, about to kill herself from anorexia. Another student, it was another issue. And, and, and I said, what did God use to turn you around? And both of these students said, it was dad sitting at a table and looking at me and saying, 
with tears going down his face. Please stop. I love you. And you're killing yourself. And you're killing me. Please stop. And that's what turned him. Not dad shouting, this is going to stop. But with the tears coming down his face. Same message. But there's no screaming. There's no fist pounding. Same message. Clear. Uncompromising. But with the tenderness of a father who loves his kids. And I wonder if I've read Stephen wrong over the years when I've read my personality into this. This is a man full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of wisdom, full of power. Maybe we should be reading a heart that's breaking wide open as he says these things and would have had all the more power because it's such a studied contrast to the men who are about to kill him. They're the ones who are ranting and raving and angry and out of control. And Stephen's imploring them. Stiff-necked, to be sure. Uncircumcised in heart, meaning you're not even saved. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You're not any different than them. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They killed the very prophets who announced Jesus, and you've killed Jesus. You're no different than they are. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and it was, and yet you didn't keep it yourselves. I think, again, these words would have been all the more powerful if they had been spoken as I'm describing them. As a man with tears coming down his face, whose heart is breaking for these people. Because it is an absolute contrast to the response that we see. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, convicted, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. See, he was not gnashing his teeth at them. I, I go, you brutal vipers, you blah, blah, blah. See, I'm gnashing my teeth. No. They were the ones gnashing their teeth, not Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. This is where this started. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and now he is seeing the glory of God. That's the father. See, he doesn't see, nobody. John 1 says, no one has ever seen God. And I believe John's speaking about God the Father. People have seen the glory of God, but nobody has ever seen God the Father. But we have seen God the Son. God the Son is revealed all through the Old Testament. So he sees the glory of God. That's the Father. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now we have the Son. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He sees the glory of God, and he sees the Son of God. Now, why was Jesus standing? Lots of the commentators say because he's, he's, he's standing in order to welcome him home. I like that. But I read another one, and I thought, I like that too. And this guy says, Jesus is standing because that's the posture of someone who's giving witness 
See, a witness stands to give witness. And Stephen's been standing as he's given his witness. And he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing. Doing what? Bearing witness of Stephen to the Father. Wow, I like that a lot. And he sees Jesus standing on his behalf. Wow. <laughs> and so these men are about to kill him. They're, about to, they're rejecting him and condemning him. And Jesus is standing for him. Not just to welcome him home, but standing on his behalf. Giving testimony and witness to Stephen who is giving witness. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice in contrast to Stephen. And they covered their ears. They didn't want to hear this. And they rushed upon him with one impulse. They're being impulsive, not Stephen. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. I would have been picking up rocks as fast as they throw them and throwing them back. Not Stephen. He stands. And they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning him. As he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Commentary after commentary says, look how Stephen imitated Jesus. Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said, as they were pounding the nails into his hands, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. I get it. There's a similarity, an obvious similarity that would not have been lost on these men between Jesus and Stephen. But you don't get that kind of similarity under these circumstances by trying to imitate Jesus. Give up on that. I mean, I can't even imitate Jesus when my wife's mad at me. <laughs> right? Let's be honest. You just can't go out in the day and say, I'm going to imitate Jesus every moment of this day. Good luck. As John Calvin would say. <laughs> Kidding. Didn't believe. Anyway. It's not going to happen. There is no strength of will that is sufficient to imitate Jesus under circumstances like this. Nobody has this clarity of mind. Nobody has this strength of will. This is not a man who's saying, oh, what was it that Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them. Oh, Father, forgive them. Into thy hand. Oh. See, the words aren't even exactly the same. They're close. Now, if he had said exactly what Jesus would said, then I'm thinking this is a man who's just repeating Jesus. But they aren't the same. They're very similar. We hear Jesus. Similarity, though, because Jesus is the one who's empowering him. But it's not imitation in the sense that a man who is just simply choosing to do what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? Remember WWJD, the bracelet? Ridiculous. That's not enough to get you through life. Because I don't have the strength to imitate Jesus. But 
Jesus has the strength to be himself in me. And that's the distinctive of this man's life. It is Christ in him. That's the only explanation for this. And right to the very end, they are seeing Christ. They've been hearing Jesus speak, and now they're seeing Jesus die. In the sense of a man who is yielded over to Christ, and Christ is displaying himself through this man. So we're out of time, so I just want to give, along that, just this. I, I, lately, I just keep coming back to one phrase in Hebrews 11. It says, they died in faith. And it's talking about people who lived their whole lives in faith, and they died still in faith. Mrs. Thomas, in Torchbearers, we just referred to her as Mrs. T., the widow of Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearer, she just passed away this week. Almost made it to 99. Once she hit 98, she said, I think I'm just going to go ahead and live to be 100. <laughs> Sweet lady. And we just, everyone who ever came into her presence, just loved being with Mrs. T. And Pat and I had a chance to see her when we were up there in February, just had a wonderful visit with her. She acted like she remembered us, but we knew she didn't. But as much as her mind was going, one thing I've seen over and over again, people's remembrance of Jesus never fails. They, may, they forget their husbands and wives, forget their children, but they never forget Jesus. And boy, when it was time to leave, she goes, let's pray. And you hold hands with her, and you just go, my word. And I, this woman died in faith. Don't we all want that? Stephen died in faith. It's one thing to live 30, 40 years in faith, but to die in faith live our whole life right up to the last day in faith. Stephen did. To die in faith, we must live in faith. To die graciously, we must live graciously. To die reflecting Christ, not imitating Christ, but reflecting Christ. We must live reflecting Christ. To die asking God to forgive those who are putting us to death. We must live asking God to forgive those who have hurt us. We won't die any better than we are living. We must die to self and live unto Christ, from Christ, daily. Stephen's death was merely another day of doing what he'd always done, living from Christ. And this was another day. If I'm not living from Jesus day after day, when the crisis comes, you're not going to see Jesus come out of me. Because I haven't been living from Christ. I've been living from self. And when the crisis comes, you're going to see self. powerful message by a man full of the Holy Spirit. They stone him and in a large sense Israel doesn't really get another good chance. 
because now the persecution starts and all the Christians leave. Jerusalem is abandoned except for those apostles. It's like when Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah in preparation for the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Israel will soon be judged. One more person is going to stand before the Sanhedrin Council. And that will be Paul. Big gap of time in between. Stephen stoned by them. And then there's gap of time. And the next one who stands in front of them is one who was in the room and witnessed what Stephen said. And when they reject what Paul says, just a few years later in 70 AD, the temple that they put so much trust in will be destroyed. And the people of Israel will be dispersed from the land that they worshipped. All in God's mercy to bring this people back to himself so that the second time Jesus comes, and he will come again, that this people will receive him as their king. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for this man who stood so boldly, uncompromisingly, clearly giving witness to you. God, we want to be people who stand true. And I pray that we would count each day as an opportunity to live from Christ and in doing so to give witness of Christ as your spirit is free to make himself known in us and through us. This is why we're here. It's why our hearts are encouraged and challenged by the example of men like Stephen. And I do pray, God, that as we just go about the daily lives that you've given us, being moms and dads, sons and daughters, with the jobs and responsibilities that we have, God, that we would live in Christ, from Christ, in being clear and bold witnesses without anger or malice, but in love and grace, with wisdom and power, that Jesus would be made known through us. In Christ's name, amen.